welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today is really our first episode where, in earnest, we are getting to the meat, to the crux of the matter, comparing the National Treasure films to National Treasure Edge of History on Disney+. Plus. This is a conversation, Emily, that you and I have been waiting to have since literally November of 2022. Oh my gosh. I mean, I feel like we were keeping track of this as we were going, but like, I think like seeing it all on a page is... Mm-hmm. there's a lot here oh so much this is i mean this isn't even going to be my my scream from parkington lane but i will say from the very first time i saw the very first episode of edge of history i started having like major stressed out moments where i was like i have to write down everything i have to remember everything there's so much to talk about here oh my gosh and it's just it feels like it's finally gonna flow out of me today it will That's flow be- out of you <laughs> Oh, Aubrey. Well, that's because uh, today's episode is going to be one of our episodes that examines parallels. You've heard this before in the context of comparing National Treasure and National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. Today, we're sort of grouping those two films as one and comparing them to Edge of History. This is also going to come with a really interesting semi-philosophical discussion about the concept of like remakes and reboots and stuff, but more on that in just a moment, because we cannot proceed with actually diving into the Parkington Lane pit, drowning in the abyss that we assume, you know, took Shaw's life at the end of the first National Treasure movie, because National Treasure has also taken over our lives as well. Um, Emily, what's your scream this week? Oh, boy. Um... I feel like I'm finally catching up to where you were when you, when we started the podcast in terms of like, I'm not struggling to find screams anymore. They're just like happening. It Um, took six seasons, but we've finally done it, everyone. Please send Emily a tweet and congratulate her. Um, so I mean mine's mine's pretty simple, honestly. It's not the best scream I've ever had, but um today uh I was uh you know trying to think of some music to listen to and I really couldn't find a good song to listen to and um happened upon uh the version of Jake Austin Walker um singing uh the Elvis song from episode four three somewhere in the first half of the season from an episode of edge of history (laughs) um and uh it is amazing and i was literally i was sitting in a room with four other people on my computer with my headphones on listening to it and i was like aubrey can see what i'm doing right now but i was like moving back and forth and like jamming to it i listened to it all the way on my drive home my drive home is an hour um so it, yeah, that's that's my that's my screen. Oh my gosh, Jake Austin Walker has a new biggest fan. <laughs> Something we're gonna keep discreet and subtle um, if we ever have the pleasure of talking to him on the podcast. That's the only one of his songs I've listened to thus far. Okay, so you're just like, what does he call? What does he call? Um, Jess early on a Stan, 
A stan? No, no. A stan would be if I listened to all of his songs and was like very obsessed with him, which I'm telling you I'm not. Okay. Yet. Aubrey, what's your scream? <laughs> um, well, my scream is something that some folks might have seen a reference to on social media. Um, my friends and I occasionally like to arrange stop listening to that song, Emily. I'm not listening to it, I'm literally just singing it in my head. Listen to my scream. <laughs> I can do both. <laughs> okay, so my friends and I occasionally like to plan, like, fancy tea parties just because we really like tea and it's an excuse to, like, dress up and hang out and eat sugary things and drink tea. Um, recently, we held one of these tea parties at my, my friends Dane and Ian's place and um, they had cut up, like, lemon slices for for the tea and I was like oh cute and I immediately was like oh my god like haha do you have do you have q-tips I'm like thinking in my brain about what things they use with the lemons in the first national treasure movie I'm like oh do you have q-tips and they're like oh yeah of course and I was like hmm do you got like blank paper and so then I like they start giving me all these objects I start like writing uh secret messages and by secret I mean mostly like the mason symbol um all over the paper and then like set it on fire so that I can expose the lemon invisible ink. And then I was like, Oh, you wouldn't fire. It takes a lot of heat to expose lemon. Oh, juice so their as... breath wouldn't have been enough. No, absolutely. Not. Well, that that's, was accurate. That's the funny thing is um, I did, I was like, do you have a hairdryer? And they're like, yes. I was like, do you have gloves? Like, yes. And then slowly we start recreating the whole scene at Patrick's house. And then this is what y'all would have seen online is my friends and I recreated the, the actual still image and posted it. And it was like my my crowning achievement. Um, it took over the tea party. I felt bad about it, but not really. Um, and I am here to report that when it comes to lemon juice as an invisible ink, which we know is a little different from what we saw in National Treasure, um, a hairdryer, too, is not hot enough to expose the ink. Ooh. Wow. Aubrey, that sounds fun. And may I just say, I am looking forward to your contributions uh, in terms of ideas uh, to my uh, bridal shower. Because I feel like there's there's some potential here. I feel as long like... as we don't annoy everyone else. I see that's the danger, right? Like, what is the level at which we can go? Um, we could just drag people into the pit with us. We, we could. So that's um, my scream. <laughs> that is a great scream. Um, if you, too, have a scream to share or have suggestions for how to incorporate National Treasure into uh, my bridal shower... Um, feel free to find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We're also available for your listening ears on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please go ahead and check out all we do on our website, nthuntpodcast.com. And please, if you have not already, for the love of God, please, or whatever deity you subscribe to... <laughs> Please pre-order our book at TuckerDSPress.com. We worked really hard on it, and we are so excited to see or hear what everyone thinks about it. All right. So that was, gosh, if that uh, intro is any indication of what the rest of this episode is going to be like, we are all in for a treat today. So 
how is this episode going to shake down? Um, we're going to start by having this philosophical-ish discussion I alluded to, discussing the concept of a spinoff versus a remake versus a reboot versus a sequel. So we can try to understand from what perspective we should be looking at Edge of History to begin with, because I feel like that's going to color some of our perception, for starters. Then we're going to list two different types of nods, if you will, to the National Treasure movies. We're going to list out a bunch of what we're going to call recreations. So elements where we feel, well, we'll define it in a minute. We're going to start with the recreations. Um, and we're probably going to spend less time on those because, I don't know, everyone can see them. They're a little more obvious. And then we're going to move into what we're going to call the Easter eggs, which are the more subtle um, nods to the movies in Edge of History. Uh, then we're going to cover some major differences between the two sets of properties and give our ultimate opinion on our assessment of the quality of the parallels. Now, before we go any further, I do have to give um, a disclaimer. Some things we have already covered in previous episodes of National Treasure Hunt, things like direct char character parallels, things like that. Um, we're not going to rehash those sorts of things here. Anything we list today is not going to be exhaustive because, quite frankly, if we were doing an exhaustive list of all of this, we would be here for hours. Ooh. We've so, already set you with some long episodes this season, so we don't want to do that to you any more than is necessary. All right, so let's start off with some uh, some definitions, shall we? And when I say definitions, we're not like going all Merriam-Webster here, right? We're just going to try to simplify this so that we can all weigh in regarding what we think Edge of History actually is, okay? So I've tried to create, Emily, somewhat of a, not a timeline, a, a continuum in a sense. On the one end of the continuum, the extreme, we have a reboot. And then on the other end, I think we have a spinoff. And somewhere in between, we have like a sequel and a remake. So here's what I think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts and see if you agree with my definitions here. In my personal perspective, a reboot is like the purest form of a, a property, a franchise, where you have the same characters continuing the existing story or like the story 20 years later or something like that. It's all in the... it's squarely within the same world with the same people okay so like the the connors yes that's a great okay. example mm -hmm. so next extreme like l one step away from that if you will is the sequel so to me the sequel is the same characters with a very new story national um, treasure one to national treasure two exactly exactly then I think comes the remake. This is where we really start flipping things on its head. So to me, this is the same story, but it's with different characters. So you're remaking the story. Okay, can I, I think a remake could also be the same characters and I guess like some elements of the story, but a different like person portraying said character so i'm thinking specifically of sure. like the superman movies yeah i would agree so okay. yeah 100 to me that's like you can't have i know i said new characters but to me if you ever put in 
one actor and replace them with another, even if they're playing the same character, there's something not purely the same there. Yeah, and it's not it's not a matter of like they do on soap operas, like they'll replace actors, but mm -hmm. like they'll pretend no one notices the person <laughs> looks different. <laughs> right. So it's it's yes, very distinct from that. Okay. What's the last one? So the last one is the complete opposite extreme, which is a spin-off. Um to me, a spin-off is where you have a new story and and new characters. So it's all new, but it's in the same old world. Hmm. Okay, yeah. So what I'm thinking is like CW, um, they they call it like the Arrowverse or the DC universe on the CW where like uh Green Arrow came first and then from that came the Flash spinoff and from that came Legends of Tomorrow spinoff and Black Lightning and all of that kind of stuff. So it's the same ultimate like universe. Totally. But we're telling different stories with different characters and there there can be some overlap going on. But yes. Okay. That's exactly. So it sounds like we're at least on the same page with these definitions. And based on these definitions, um, I feel like that makes Edge of History a pure spinoff. Do you agree? Oh, 100%. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I think that's important. And the reason I wanted to even have this conversation to start the episode is because, as everyone knows, if they've been listening, I've been stalking Twitter a lot as it comes to Edge of History. And I think people throw these terms around kind of interchangeably, but I think it's important that we not do that because by if you're telling me your opinion on Edge of History and you think it's you say it's in the context of Edge of History being a remake, I'm going to react to your opinion really, really differently. Yeah, and I think that a lot of... I obviously, I haven't been looking at the Twitter sphere quite as much as you have, but I think from what I've seen, uh, especially from some of the people that like aren't part of our direct National Treasure Hunt community... A lot of people think this is a remake yes, of National Treasure. And usually those are the people that haven't watched it because they're like, oh, this is a remake. I'm not like, I'm not into this. Um, but I think that often remakes can get like a bad, a bad rap where it's not always bad. But I think in this case, people are like, I don't want you to remake the yeah. entire franchise. Yeah. So, yeah, I think definitely it's important that we are landing on the term spinoff in terms of what we're calling Edge of History. Awesome. Okay. So now anyone who tweets at us, be sure to clarify that it's – no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So then the question becomes, in a spinoff, how do you best pay homage to and ultimately respect that original story and those original characters that make your new story possible? And so – I there's obviously I think multiple levels to this. We kind of have to simplify or else this episode is going to get overly complicated. Yeah. And and I'm going to break this down as what we've called again in the outline of the episode earlier an easter egg versus like recreation. Um so to me an easter egg is, you know, because we have to define these for everyone to understand what we're about to say later. To me, when I organized this episode, an Easter egg was like a subtle nod that you have to search for. Literally, I mean, that's, I'm 
like kind of the definition of an Easter egg, right? That's why, that's why it's named that because you have to, you go on an Easter egg hunt, you have to go looking for the eggs. Like, that's why people, I'm not a Swifty, but I know that people love looking in Taylor Swift's Twitter posts and Instagram and everything that she does looking for Easter eggs, really well hidden hints at like a song title or something like that. And so to me, in, in terms of a TV show or a movie, an Easter egg would be that subtle point that you have to go looking for it's probably related to a tiny detail or a more trivial point i don't like to call anything a national treasure trivial but something that you could theoretically remove and it's not going to break the whole story you know something Mm -hmm. like that yeah no i I definitely agree with that i'm very familiar with easter eggs in the in terms of uh, marvel films so for anybody that kind of joins me that's listening that kind of joins me in that I know a lot of you know there will be trailer breakdowns and then breakdowns after the movies of like what are all of the easter eggs and some of them you know you'll get and then some of them you'll look at and be like you would have had to read you know issue 52 of this specific spinoff of this comic series to even get that so there are definitely different levels of easter eggs but yes I I agree with that definition Now, to me, when you start taking those Easter eggs and instead of hiding them in the grass, you just present them on a silver platter right in front of someone's nose, these things start getting more and more obvious. These are, to me, recreations. So a recreation is what, for the purposes of this episode, we are going to call a a pretty overt replication or remake to some extent, not to confuse our earlier terms, of a major scene, a major event, or something like that, I would say that these are very obvious. You don't have to go looking for them as hard. You maybe only had to go watch the National Treasure movies once or twice in your life to pick up on something like this. Um, I don't know if these have a technical term, but I'm calling them recreations. (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I think it's interesting. I think recreations... I don't know why for me gives some term of like negative valence to what's happening, which I don't know that you're trying to convey with your definition. I I obviously, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, Whereas I think I, I don't have a better term to offer (laughs) here to be clear, but I do think that it's very interesting um, because a lot of times these like, uh, recreations or these kind of like callbacks, if you will. Maybe callbacks is a, a maybe a, a word that I'm thinking of that's like a slightly more uh, positive valence. I understand that it's still like your point is that they're like recreating a scene, but frequently that it's to me is also what I would consider like a callback to something rather See, than an Easter egg. I get that. But I, th- I personally think of a callback as something quite different. To me, a callback is, you know, we see Riley in episode four and he says, oh, we've been working on this project for the last three, five, 15 years. Mm. To me, that's a callback. Okay. So I'm okay with the definition recreations as long as we can agree that it doesn't necessarily hold a negative valence in the context of this conversation i definitely don't think it has to now spoiler alert i might think some of them are not good but overall they don't have to be bad (laughs) um but again based on these definitions of easter egg and recreations what does edge of history use both 
Yeah. It uses plenty of both. Um, though I do have to say, Emily, you and I have to have a little bit of humility and self-awareness here. We might not be the best two people to assign a label to the Easter eggs and the recreations and Edge of History, since we do know the films better than most people. We do. It is very possible that some of the things that we will refer to as recreations might to some people be considered more of an Easter egg because they don't remember the film as vividly as we do. Um, So yes, I do think that's definitely an important point to to know and some of the things that we think of as easter eggs will probably be easter eggs but like some people may be like well you really had to dig for that yeah. one Whereas for <laughs> us it's kind of like i mean it wasn't you know it was like an easter egg hunt when you're like 12 like it's hard but it's not like you know you're not searching the world for, right. for the easter eggs I love that. That's exactly right. Now, that being said, we did have to organize this episode somehow. Um, So we're going to assign our own definitions that you don't have to agree with. But if you do or don't agree, please feel free to to reach out to us on socials and let us know. I am really curious to see whether, well, I don't know, just how off base or how out of touch we are with the average viewer of the franchise. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think it's great. Um, so I don't know, Aubrey. I think I am I'm ready to get going with this. Let let's let's get started and discuss some of these things. All right, let's let the games begin. Uh we're gonna start with the recreations that we're gonna point out for you all. Again, non-exhaustive list here. And because I like to turn everything into a game, we're gonna play a subtle game of Aubrey the referee, and I'm going to note my yellow and red flags of these recreations. I'll do the same for the Easter eggs, although I will admit there will be more green flags for those um, because I just want to share my opinions. And then Emily's going to argue with me. I was going to say I, in this example, am going to be a VAR, which is uh, yes, it is a it is a soccer football, uh, depending on where you come from uh, term. It stands for video assistant referee. Um, so basically they have video cameras, obviously, that are capturing the games and they are able if something is like a close call or somebody accidentally calls like a red card or gives a yellow card when it should be a red card they can refer to VAR and like try to overturn or whatever the call so that's what i'm going to be for uh s- some of these <laughs> many of them i i completely agree with uh the interpretation of but there uh, there are some that i vehemently do not so <laughs> we will we will see how this goes we're gonna chalk all this up to emily and i being very different people with very different opinions okay so we're gonna go through um in sequential order in episodes i did my best to keep them in order don't hate me if i didn't get it right um first example episode one right at the top we opened the whole series of edge of history with a flashback to explain the legend underlying the treasure hunt. Um, We, of course, see this in the first National Treasure film. 
We have another flashback at the start of the second National Treasure film. It's a little different in nature than the first one. I would say that the opening of the Edge of History series, that flashback is much more adjacent to the first film's flashback. For sure. I actually thought this was fine. I, I liked the recreation use here because it immediately gave you the same vibe as National Treasure, although I will say its presentation was, was rather abrupt in the way Sadusky introduced it. But, you know, can't have everything our way. Yeah, and I'd also like to say, like, how else are you going to start a national treasure project, but with, but with a flashback? I mean, it's like, it's to be expected at this point. Yeah, honestly, could you imagine if they did National Treasure three and didn't start with a flashback? That would like, I would have a pit in my stomach from the get go. No, because I'd be like, what are we? What is the point? What are we like, watching? What are, what are we looking for? <laughs> <laughs> okay, on the same page. Step one, awesome. One for one. All right, my second recreation I pulled out here, also from episode one, clear familial tension. So in Edge of History, this immediately, it actually comes about in a couple different ways. The main parallel here is between, uh, is comparing Liam and Agent Sadusky's relationship to the relationship between um, Ben and Patrick. Of course, there's more familial tension, though, um, between Jess and the concept of her father, who she thinks is dead, and then once she does eventually... <laughs> find him there's that active tension yeah both the concept and and the person of her father yeah exactly um this is another recreation that i actually really like i think it's wholly necessary to put this in the national treasure universe i think part of the reason it, i'm cool with it is because it's not an exact replication you're not dealing with like um a father-son relationship um, it's not like the younger member of the family who's the treasure hunter and trying to convince the older man. Like, to me, this is a really great example of let's imagine if they had made this story a little bit different. Let's imagine, you know, Jess was a gung-ho treasure hunter and she was trying to convince her mother that this was a good idea and her mother was super anti. That, I can already feel, would have made me a little bit queasier about this. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I think something else that I... I'm thinking about, at least in terms of these first two points that we've made, is that I would almost refer to these as, like, themes mm -hmm. of the National Treasure franchise. Totally. So, like, once again, if these themes weren't present, it would feel very weird. I completely agree. Um, I think the themes are super important to the franchise as a whole even so like we can even think of it this way what are the other aspects of this franchise we're familiar with well for example the prequel books they also yeah, have I was, that's what i was thinking with the familial it, connections and and mm -hmm. like it, it did switch you know depending on what book you were reading who was the treasure hunter and who was kind of along for the ride mm -hmm. um we we typically got some amount of flashbacks in in those books as well so definitely definitely some theme theme stuff happening okay well the next one i'm gonna say i don't know if you would consider this a theme you might i i don't i don't really i'm not i wonder if i'm gonna be able to put my finger on why but our next recreation is in episode three we learn that rafael and manuela had a goal of proving that manuela's theory about malinche was real and effectively clearing 
Malinche's name, you know, because the historical community saw her as a traitor. And they were going to do this by finding the treasure. This is very, very, very similar, if not identical, to Ben needing to find Cibola in the second movie to prove Thomas's Thomas Gates' story, to prove he was right, and to clear Thomas's name. Now, to me, this is my first Aubrey red flag. And there's a reason. It's not just because I don't like it, because if you all listen to our recap episode, I was not a fan of this. It seemed like a stretch. It's like, oh, we're going to prove that she should get her PhD by finding a treasure. Um, that's not why I have an issue here. My issue is because this is such a specific rationale for the treasure hunt, this whole clearing the family name thing, that it almost didn't work for the movie. You know, people have criticized this um, in the movie. People have been like, I don't understand how finding the treasure clears his name, etc. It almost I am one of those people still. <laughs> See that? It almost broke the movie. So to me, doing it again for the show really feels like a bad choice. You know, because at least for the second movie, we ha you have the buy-in. People love the characters. People love the story, everything like that. So at least, even if it's like you, Emily, where you're like, I still don't get this. You're still along for the ride. This is very new. This story, these characters, you can't just assume people are going to be along for the ride if your rationale is a little iffy. That's fair. I, I definitely see uh, the point you are making. Oh, God. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I, this is actually not one of the ones that I have a very, very strong argument for. Um, I will say, I think the reason that you're not identifying this as a theme is because though there was some amount of this in the first National Treasure movie, at least in terms of like, Ben proving at least like his dad and stuff that the Gates family was like not you know insane the, it wasn't something that was seen in both of the movies um, and so I think it's harder to call this a theme right if it's mm -hmm. not seen in the first movie as well my second point is that um, I would almost argue the opposite not saying that it's not a red flag but um, that because of the fact that the kind of like saving the family name, familial type connection rationale in National Treasure 2 was, in my opinion, very convoluted, right? And like you said, there are still many people like me to this day that don't <laughs> fully understand it. I did appreciate that when they did it here, it was very linear and it was very clear what was happening. And I mean, I don't think this is true necessarily, but one could almost see it as like the Wiverleys kind of being like, well, at, now we can get it in, but we'll make it very clear. <laughs> this is what we're doing. <laughs> right. We, it won't yeah. be, it won't be caught up in this other stuff. So I, I, I don't necessarily disagree that I didn't really like this, this <laughs> plot point. Uh, but more just I think it's interesting the, whether you view the uh, kind of complexity versus simplicity as mm -hmm. kind of a pro or a con mm -hmm. of the situation. Okay, fair enough. Um, part of this coloration from us also could be our own experiences in academia and the whole True. like, I'm going to prove my thesis by finding a treasure feels a little absurd. Um, 
Anyway, let's move on to another recreation in episode three. This is where we're interpreting the clue that is going to lead us to Graceland. Okay, so there is um, the word peace is capitalized in the written Elvis related clue because peace was referring to a person mourning Dove White. Now, of course, this is a direct parallel to um, silence being capitalized in the Meerschaum pipe clue in the first film. Um, part of this, I think if it was subtle and you just as an observer, you might recognize that the letter is capitalized. To me, if, you, if they never mentioned it, that would have been an Easter egg. But because in the first movie, we have Ian saying, these two words, why are they capitalized? Do the because... accent, do the accent. No, <laughs> I'm not doing an accent. But the henchman's like, oh, because it's important. And Ian goes, because it's a name. And then in this, in Edge of History, we once again have someone outwardly pointing out, almost like an afterthought. They had already solved the clue. They're like, oh, and, and peace was a name. That's why it's capitalized. It was that kind of overtness to me. Um, it's a recreation. I'm sure this is an example of something people would have seen as an Easter egg. For us, it's not as much. Um, and for me, this is an Aubrey yellow flag, mostly just because if I never see the whole it's capitalized because it's a person rationale again, it will be too soon. Um, why, you may ask? Because not only was it used in the first movie and this show, it was used in every single one of the prequel books. Yes, that is true. Um, although I will say, so I know we didn't get this in the second movie. But I feel like, I guess, because we saw it in the prequel books, it's starting to feel kind of like a theme to me. It's not Which a theme, it's a motif. away from the recreation thing. I don't know. I'm honestly, I was honestly fine with this. I, um, I think it's uh, an interesting thing. I think it's a nice homage to the, you know, like that first movie, kind of like a callback in my definition right <laughs> um so i was i was okay with this but um i can i can understand why uh you may feel differently okay moving right along it's another episode three recreate you know what now that i'm looking at this i'm getting why episode three was not my favorite episode um okay we have another episode three recreation however this one is going to be a rare Aubrey green flag. This is when henchman Nate falls into a pit and does the whole Wilhelm scream like Shaw in the Parkington Lane pit. This is an Aubrey green flag because it is so bad that it's hilarious. I I liked it. I think it was great. It's um, so funny. It's so funny. So I many, laughed out it's, loud. It's like the... It's kind of like it to me, and I think to, to you and I, um, which is why we might be seeing it in a kind of more positive valence. Uh, I think uh, this has become the equivalent to someone's got to go to prison, Ben. But it's like someone's got to fall into the pit <laughs> um, and die, Yeah, presumably. Uh, although in this case, we know this dude did die. Um <laughs> But yeah, so I think, yeah, I was fine with that. Uh, but once again, really interesting because that's just like our opinion of yeah. the of that because we find it kind of such a hilarious. It's just so funny. 
Yeah, I, it's just, yeah, it's great. Okay, okay, agreed. Okay, Moving well, on. relatedly, though, I can't give it all the credit because right after that happens, we have another, this might be more of an Easter egg. To me, it again jumps out at the screen. We have Casey saying, because why did he fall into the pit? They were exploring basically a false clue. So Casey says, oh, maybe the legend of the treasure was just created to lure the conquistadors into traps, which is the same thing that Patrick had always said. You know, I figured out the legend. They made it to keep the British occupied during the Revolutionary War. Again, that's something that a lot of people are going to see as an Easter egg. For me, as soon as I heard it, I was just like, it's the same thing. Okay. Um. I'm going to push back on that one a little bit. Um, really? I did not see... Well, one, I didn't see that as a negative thing. Um, but also, I think to me, and maybe it's just because of National Treasure, but I think to me, I associate treasure hunts with traps and false leads. So it seems like a very common thing to me that there would be some kind of, you know, false lead that would be dangerous for people. Of course. That, that so I don't see with. this as a, I guess I don't see this as a national treasure specific thing that is being recreated more just like kind of like a treasure hunt adjacent thing in my in my opinion at least yeah and i'm not arguing i think a lot of uh, treasure hunts have to have the false leads and everything it's particularly this idea that someone who has just experienced frustration or a negative emotion is like the the legend isn't even real they made the legend to protect themselves that's the entire sentiment that's being recreated here. And I think this is going to come out in the last recreation that we're going to talk about. Something that I think I learned about myself in this process is um, as soon as you're kind of repeating or recreating a line, like a line of script or text, that's where I kind of take issue. It's kind of the reason why I think the whole... Um, capital letters quotes stand out to me this quote stands out to me and then something we're going to talk about in a moment also stands out to me and i wonder if you have any thoughts on that like the recreation of text versus the recreation of like the look or the action of a scene i do um and i think well i'm gonna wait oh is it relevant until to we get okay. to the last one because i have a, a that is the one that i feel most strongly about and mm -hmm. i have a, a handful of examples there i will just say in brief I think it is, once again, because we come from different, like, pop culture backgrounds, uh, what we are individually used to seeing mm -hmm. in things might be influencing our opinions. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Um, okay, episode five. We have the parallel between the Governor's Ball and the National Archives Gala. Um, so some of you might ask, you know, how do you exactly compare these two? Well, part of it is because the um, cast and crew themselves have compared the two. This was meant to be um, a, a recreation, a callback, whatever you want to call it, that was done intentionally. So we're absolutely going to bring it up here. Um, we have the kind of dressy, high-stakes event with high-profile people all around you. Theoretically, it's a risky scenario. You're somewhere where you're not supposed to be. You don't really belong there. And both events ultimately involve stealing an artifact. 
Um, for me personally, I could have done without this. To me, this is a bit of a red flag. It's a little too replicative. I think you can steal something without setting it at the equivalent to the gala, even if you wanted to make the stealing thing a, th a thing <laughs> again. Um, and so that's just an example to me of a situation where it's a little too on the nose personally. Uh, what do you think, Em? Um, so I guess I have a question then. Sure. Because if we look at National Treasure 1, right, mm -hmm. we have obviously the gala scene that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then in National Treasure 2, it, it's it's a little different, but we have the scene at Mount Vernon mm -hmm. where Ben goes to the president's birthday party. Mm -hmm. So, one, this is happening in all three of these uh, visual mediums. Mm -hmm. But would you then consider... Uh, what happens in National Treasure 2 with the president's birthday party, a recreation of the gala scene? And Absolutely. if not, why? Absolutely not, because you have, to me, you have different elements of a scene that can be recreated, right? And I think one of the keys here is you have a setting. And for National Treasure and National Treasure 2, the setting is replicated in terms of it being a fancy event, However, the ultimate purpose of what's happening there is different. If something was being stolen at Mount Vernon, I can't say I would have felt very positively about it. That would have been super on the nose with the movie, the first movie. In Edge of History, we have the fancy event that they're not really invited to. You know, they're kind of out of place um, with a lot of important people milling about and they steal something. It's kind of exact the only thing you so could do it's the stealing it's all of it together like all of those well, because i could argue for the president's birthday party it's mm -hmm. it's an event ben's out of place the president even himself is like i'm surprised that you made it on the guest list a lot of important people there right he mm -hmm. says hi to some pretty high profile people um there's like a plan in place but the main difference is that Although I would argue, I could argue he's stealing the president. No. <laughs> Which he's, he's not, he's kidnapping the president. Oh my God. But um, the, the, the difference then seems to be the, the stealing, because I would say that the other components yeah. of what you're talking about are. But what you have to, there. what you have to, I think, acknowledge is all those four different factors we put forth. They're not, if you're giving like, a pie chart of the important components of a scene they don't all get equal components of important right like together they make a full pie chart but the fact that they're surrounded by important people isn't that important or the fact that they weren't invited there isn't that important the really important thing here is the purpose of what happens which is in this case the stealing and so yes if you just had the replication of the stealing you still have a big piece of the pie chart taken up but there's still there's still a little leftover that's going to make it a little different, a little unique. But when you put it all together, it's hard to ignore the full pie chart. And I don't know why that's the only way I can think of it. I was making pie charts for work today, so maybe that's why. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think the, the more you replicate it exactly, the more I question it. Now, that being said, you also asked if I would consider the second movie recreating and having a negative opinion, therefore, compared to the first movie. To me, it's also very different when you have the movies as their own world compared to this. If you are in sequel territory, which is what the movies are, I think I, and I, I dare say a lot of people who have my same opinion about this, 
don't get as mad. They see it as cute when the same thing is happening again because it's the same characters, it's the same world. It's it's that would be a callback. But in this spin-off where you don't have the same characters, you don't have the same story, now it feels like you're erring on the side of remake territory. And that's where I think it gets a little fuzzy. If I had to put a definition to why I think I end up feeling this way, it's because the more you replicate exact scenes or even exact lines of dialogue between two properties that aren't the same characters, now it starts feeling a little bit like a remake. Okay. I definitely completely understand your opinion. I do not agree with it. But um I think that that's I think that that's okay. Um I don't think we have to necessarily agree um on this particular point. Um Well, so, if you don't agree yeah. with this one, we're definitely not going to agree with the next one. Oh, 100% no. We've already had this conversation. But I will say that argument that I just made about kind of erring on the side of remakeism is going to apply exactly to this next one so i don't have to talk a ton here um episode seven is really the last big recreation that we're going to talk about y'all know it you know what's coming i really hope based on this conversation you know it's coming it is just valenzuela's line that says i'm going to break him out i'm going to break my father out of prison to say the rest of my piece Perhaps unsurprisingly, this is an Aubrey red flag that is so red it's basically purple. Um, this works me up so much that I literally cannot get into the discussion of it again. So I am very, very happy I gave my rationale with the previous example. Everything I just said about the whole Governor's Ball National Archives, apply it to this one and then put it on steroids. Emily, I know you have different opinions and you actually didn't dislike this moment. Yeah, um, I do have different opinions. And once again, I think it's mainly because of, you know, the kind of pop culture that we uh, consume. Um, I will also say that I think um, as you're discussing things verging on the territory of a remake, I think that for you and maybe other people, remake has a negative valence to it. And I will agree that in some cases, remake has somewhat of a negative valence to me as well. Well, we also said at the very top, you know, people online who are talking about this as a remake, a lot of people who aren't watching it, they're like, oh, this is a remake, so I, I, I don't want to watch it. Right. And so I think something that's interesting is that when I think of a remake, um, I typically think of things like superhero movies, which are so frequently there are remakes all the time i mean like just look at how many superman movies there are it's a remake of the same thing every time okay and i don't necessarily think of that as a bad thing now whether or not i like all of the movies is a different story but i if there's a new superman movie there's a new superman movie so like i'm gonna go see it anyway getting back to this like dialogue component so I have a few examples and I tried to pull them from different kind of scenarios so that maybe we could like kind of dissect this a little further. Um, so the first one I have, it's a little obscure, Aubrey, you're probably not going to recognize it, but I'm hoping that some people will. Um, there is, uh, there are two characters that are part of the Avengers. Their names are Wanda and Vision. Um, and there is a scene when Wanda initially 
like creates in a sense vision um she is doing something to a stone that's in his head it sounds weird um but she says the line um i i only feel you or like i can feel you um later on uh movies movies down the line before they share their first on-screen kiss he says to her she's nervous about something and he says to her i can only feel you and they kiss it's very nice and then there was a television show that was made called wandavision Mm -hmm. um and wandavision was after slash before it was weird wandavision is a separate entity but like containing the same characters but kind of different storyline ish and uh there is a scene where she's looking at his dead body and she says i can't feel you Mm -hmm. okay so like all of these uh like that that term itself the like i can feel you i can't feel you it's super generic right like obviously it being repeated is not a it's not like they're repeating a very like uh, complex speech or anything mm-hmm. like that, right? Um, so I think, you know, that's one example, but I do recognize that it's the same characters that's it. that yeah. are saying this every time. So what I wanted to do was then also find an example of something in, like, a reboot, per se, or I guess remake, yeah, where the same uh type of thing happens so um a lot of times what we will see in movies like superman movies um is that there will be stereotypical superman lines because i mean like superman's a good character and he has some depth to him but like in every movie like he's gonna learn to fly (laughs) Right, he's gonna he's gonna save some people. Probably, most likely, gonna fall in love with Lois Lane. Like some generic things that are always gonna happen. But there's usually like a line or two, and they they've kind of started to move away from it a little more in recent times. But um, a very common thing for Superman related content that was on television or in movies was it's a bird, it's a plane it's superman um that one's a little more specific right than like i feel you but it's also it's it's in a remake so it's different people saying this thing same character same you know they're living in metropolis or smallville or one of the places superman lives right like it's the same kind of story arc that's happening so I would argue, I, I really appreciate the research there and the examples. So I think they help with the conversation for sure. I think they're really different than this for specific reasons. Like to me, the whole WandaVision example, even though I haven't seen it, based on what you've shared, because I think you described them really well, um, to me, that does that wouldn't bother me at all. That would actually be something that would make me really happy because that's to me, that's the equivalent of the secret lives of Charlotte. It's full circle. It's like a circular moment, right? Where it comes back and becomes important again. Um, that makes sense within the same story with the same characters. On the example with the remake for 
uh, Superman, because the remake is happening with the same characters, as we discussed before, it's the same characters, different actors or whatever, that doesn't bother me. That wouldn't bother me. I think, and the other thing about this is now it's creating, again, the same dialogue for a different character in a spinoff. But you're trying to make it sound like the original character from the original story. And to boot, it's not a minor line. It is the line. So that's why yeah. I think it's a little different. I think you can still like it. Like, I'm not trying to detract from that. But that's what I think the difference is here. Yeah. So I think the, the I, I totally agree with that. I think the last thing that I'll say on this um, is more just in terms of I do agree that it is like a big line in the films. Um, the like, I'm going to do this, whatever. Not whatever. <laughs> But, you know, a big, a big line in, in the films, uh, in the franchise itself. Um, there are uh, a handful of other kind of like large, I guess, lines of dialogue that are continuously referenced throughout many different franchises or medium. And I, so I realize that this concept is, it's still not getting to the point of the fact that, you know, the issue you're taking is that it's happening within the same franchise. Um, but I will say, I think part of the reason that it didn't bother me was because of the fact that I am very used to um, a very common, what I would call a common line of dialogue being reused places and it's not that it's common in the sense that it's ordinary it's more common in the sense that like you it it is iconic in its original context but a lot of other people will use it right mm -hmm. and so the one i'm thinking of is spoiler alert my favorite movie it's not national treasure um is uh Casablanca. Uh it's an old black and white movie, but there is a there is a line in there, the two characters, spoiler alert, are leaving each other. They're they're not going to stay together and um they say to one another, "Well, we'll always have Paris." Uh that is like the quintessential Casablanca line. Um I cannot tell you how many places i have heard that line i literally i think i was watching the big bang theory last yeah. night and i literally heard a version of that like well we'll always have so and it's the same cadence yeah but it's a different time. franchise it's a different no, 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 property. i understand but i'm saying that what i think why it doesn't bother me that the line like the line didn't bother me in the context of edge of history was because I'm used to literally one of my favorite lines being referenced like everywhere. And I see that as a very positive thing just because I see it so frequently. 
Okay, so we talked a lot about recreations and our varying interpretations of them. We want to hear what you think. Do you have strong opinions about this? Do you feel um, Emily's argument about how lines have been replicated from other franchises and that kind of colors the way you hear lines in the National Treasure franchise? Do you feel my argument where the more you re replicate um, lines of dialogue in a... Uh, within an existing franchise, it starts to feel like a remake. Tell us what you think on social media. But now we're going to spend some time going into a non-exhaustive list of Easter eggs. So these are the more subtle references that we want to know if you caught along with us. Um, I will point out my favorite ones. It'll be Aubrey's green flags when they come up. Um, we'll, we can go into some of these in more detail, but not all of them. We'll, we'll keep this a little quicker. You ready, Em? Yeah, I think the best point of, uh, I think the best thing of, about Easter eggs is that, you know, we can acknowledge where they are, but like they're small enough that we don't necessarily need to spend a ton of time. Yeah, it's mostly like, them, so. it's, mostly, it's like, mostly like, hey, did you catch this? Yeah, yeah. Can you, could you be a co-host of the National Treasure Hunt right. podcast? And we <laughs> get to be those people. I'm always the person who sits in the Marvel theaters waiting for the end credit scene, like Googling all the Easter eggs that were in there. And now we get to be the people that are explaining we could, the Easter eggs. We could write the article. <laughs> so exciting. Okay. okay. There's a lot starting in episode one. I'm going to start by comparing the Daughters of the Plumed Serpent Medallion to The Secret Lies with Charlotte Clue and to Mitch's Booth Diary page. Why? Well, these are all really important artifact objects passed down in a family, a key family in the story, related to a treasure hunt. Of course, Jess doesn't know that hers is related to a treasure hunt at first, but early on in the treasure hunt, the medallion's symbol does become her main point of reference for the treasure and her search, much like The Secret Lies with Charlotte Clue, guides the hunt in the first film and the Booth Diary page uh, launches the hunt in the second. Uh, yes, I like right. that a lot. All right. Kudos. Let's move on to the next one in episode one. This, I, I feel like a lot of people probably noticed, maybe Billy, when we first see her, she is at a Spanish villa and we see her using a, uh, a mallet of sorts to smash through an old painting at the villa. This, of course, is a kind of a direct scenic replica of Ian's henchman smashing through the face of the Parkington Lane crypt in the first film. I loved it. That was a great one. Yep, this was an Aubrey Green flag. That's like the perfect level of, you show me them doing the same unimportant thing from the same exact camera angle, and you have me every time. Uh, yeah, it was great. Next one. Next one. Episode one, use of a fake ID badge. Um, so, of course, in National Treasure 1, we have Ben using a fake ID badge as a janitor at the National Archives Gala, and we have our henchman, Nate, in Edge of History, uh, using a fake FBI ID badge uh, when they're confronting Jess after Sadusky's death. And a cool twist on an Easter egg, because we're going from the good guy using it to the bad guy using it. We'd love to see it. All right, one more for episode one, y'all. 
the and this is one that Emily actually pointed out when Jess and Tasha have snuck into the Masonic Lodge in Edge of History episode one and they have Sadusky's gavel uh, the light reflecting off of the shiny surface of the gavel and sort of pointing to the altar is a lot like the shadow of Independence Hall's weather vane hitting a very specific brick on Independence Hall's chimney in National Treasure 1. And it was specific to, like, the time of day. So, oh my gosh, amazing. That made me very excited. Good for you. So that would be, would that be an Emily Green flag? Oh, 100% Emily Green flag. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's shift to episode two. We've got use of a puzzle box. That, see that in most not most treasure hunt films, honestly. I'm starting to realize. Yeah, I watched what? a Glass Onion, yeah. the Knives Out thing the other day. There was a puzzle box like right at the beginning. I was just like, oh, hey. 100%. I, I will say, um, I know this is an Aubrey and Emily yellow reddish flag. Not the fact that they used a puzzle box. We love to see it. But rather the fact uh, that the actual box in Edge of History was solved rather ridiculously. Please refer to episode 51 for our complaints about said ridiculousness okay yes continue also in episode two we have an exchange happening on a u.s battleship in edge of history we have jess meeting billy on the uss kid and a trade is happening between protagonist and villain here uh we're gonna trade the relic for orin you know human person um Over in National Treasure 1, we have an exchange between villain and protagonist on another battleship, the USS Intrepid. Of course, in this case, we're trading, in theory, a look at the Declaration of Independence using the ocular device um, for the Declaration of Independence and the Meerschaum pipe. Of course, things end up spinning out of control. But um, to me, this was a beautiful Aubrey Green flag. Just the use of the battleship for an important villain hero meetup. Yeah, I think for me, I just really enjoyed the fact that they brought some history in terms of like the battleships into the show, which is, I think, why I really liked the Easter egg. Well, remember when we did our whole episode on the Intrepid, we were like, this boat is so interesting. I can't right. wait to look up the kid now. <laughs> the USS kid, to, to be clear, not just like the kid on the, the street. Kid. No, 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 we're looking up the kid um, that was that helped out Riley in the uh, in the first movie. Oh, I wonder what he is doing nowadays. Um, Actually, I'm so glad you asked, Emily, because that might just be the subject of a future episode of this very National Treasure Hunt season. Moving right along, still in episode two, we have Agent Ross writing off Jess and Tasha when they uh, come in sort of for assistance in the same way that Abigail writes off Ben and Riley at the archives. Now, this isn't a perfect parallel, right? Because Agent Ross is FBI. Um, Abigail is from the National Archives. Um, But at this point, it happens sort of at the same point in both stories. Um, And there's sort of a warning of sorts happening. But there's also the element of the vagueness of the protagonist story in each case, right? Like Ben and Riley are like super reticent to give the full details. Tasha and Jess even more reticent to give the full details. Yes, definitely caught on to that one. Was proud of myself. Awesome. Okay, let's move on to episode three then. Um, They said that Malinche's name was, quote, dragged through the mud. Oh my gosh, I might have jumped out of my seat. (laughs) 
Okay. when this occurred. So this is, of course, the his name is Mud expression uh, about Dr. Dr. Mudd and comparisons to Thomas Gates. Also in episode three, Agent Sadusky, he found the jade box in Cibola. Edge of History admits this. We will be explaining this once again, actually in next uh, episode, our next podcast episode. So stay tuned for that. Um, this was a green flag for me. This to me is like almost like a callback, my definition of a callback, where you're kind of linking the stories together in a way that does not, it's not destructive in any way. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. Okay, still in episode three. Episode three had a lot of recreations and a lot of Easter eggs, so episode three was just a lot to handle. Um, in episode three, we are rationalizing that Elvis kept Morning Dove White's clue on his favorite guitar because it would, quote, end up in a museum. Did you did you pick up on this, Em? Well, Orin is like Riley. <laughs> so I'm going to say, is this Riley with the, the secret book, the president's secret book? Mm -mm. No, this is literally the fact that um, they say that the reason you keep a clue on a document like the Declaration of Independence is because you know it's always going to be protected. It's going to end up in a place like a museum, etc. Um, I th This is going to be a borderline yellow flag for me. Um, I, I really hated this one, but I can at least recognize that it is an Easter egg. Why do I hate it? Well, I'm sure the fact that the thing... that would end up in a museum, i.e. the guitar, um, didn't actually hold the clue they were talking about to begin with. I'm sure that didn't help my uh, interpretation of this. Fair enough. They had to, they had to throw us a red herring Right, exactly. <laughs> A red herring to go with Easter your red egg. flag. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, also in episode three, we have Oren knowing about Elvis's secret room and sort of being the only person of the crew knowing about Elvis's secret room, paralleling. Do you know This him? is Now the it's Riley coming. this is the Riley president secret book thing. Yes, exactly. I will argue, however, that Riley's contribution is still more significant than Oren's because at least the secret room would have been a bit more Googleable. There. All right, I got one more for episode three. <laughs> Okay. Liam is shown very quickly to be stuffing his exterminator costume as he's trying to escape the Graceland heist into a bathroom trash can at Graceland. This is directly um, kind of showing the same sequence of events as Ben taking off his janitor's outfit and stuffing it into a bathroom trash can at the National Archives. To me, this is another green flag that looks a lot like that whole Billy smashing through a painting thing. I like it. I, I will, will you know, make the argument that I think Liam stuffing the exterminator costume uh, into the bathroom at the uh, at, at Graceland uh, could have been a replication of Ben putting his janitor outfit into the archives bathroom. Aubrey is vehemently shaking her head, so Right. I, Be obviously she's going to disagree. <laughs> yeah, this is this is why we um set up those definitions at the outset. Remember, in this case the the easter egg is is about something that's trivial and not important. A recreation is like a scene, a a large element that is important to the story. So, um I would argue that if you're calling the Liam thing here a recreation, then you have to call the Billy breaking through the uh painting a recreation as well. But Okay, I don't but I would I don't also think they argue are. that this is part of a it's not it's not the gala, but it's part of a heist, right? 
and part of the heist sequence at the gala. So this is honestly, this is part of the larger. This is part of a recreation. I would agree. Context. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think okay. that's why I'm seeing it that way. Continue. Moving on to episode four. Um, we we know what we love it. We see Riley trying to solve the twin-tongued serpent's tail clue in the same sort of way and cadence that Ben monologue solves his clues in the movies. Less successful, but he he did his best. I loved this. I thought it was so funny. I thought it was really on par for his character, really in character for him. Um, and he acted this out beautifully, like almost like he was in on the joke. Yes, for sure. All right, moving on to episode five, we have Billy going to an academic for help with Cortez's journal, paralleling Mitch going to Ben's mom for help with the planks. For the record, I despised this, but I do recognize that others might not see the analogy as obviously, making it an Easter egg that I just happen to dislike. I'm very proud of you for having that uh, realization. You know, I, t I do, I have very strong opinions, but I do try very hard to be fair. And you do a good job. Well, thank sure. you. Moving on to one more point in episode five, um, we have uh, the sentiment that, quote, Meriwether Lewis was murdered for the wrong journal. Now, this is not a pair, like a direct replication of anything. Um, this is what I would consider just a good bit of, you know, classic National Treasure style. We're taking an historical event and just adding a little twist to it, just like inserting Thomas Gates into the Herndon House meeting. Um, on the night of Lincoln's assassination, or like inserting the Olmec planks into the Resolute desks, or like turning Mount Rushmore's construction into a cover-up. Yeah, yeah, that's I, that's great. I did I did like the the National Treasure style. Mm -hmm. That was to me a really successful bit there. Okay, we got two from episode six. Um, I think we mentioned might have mentioned this one back in episode fifty-three. Um, we have Billy saying, this could be your chance to have the last laugh, Jess. And then we have, of course, Ian in the first film saying, you should be able to rub this treasure in their arrogant faces. Same sentiment. Very, and, very same. And it's, it's being shared from villain to hero. Love it. The other episode six Easter egg here. Emily, I see your face. Do you want to read this one? It's when Jess and Billy and Casey... Uh, used white gloves to examine Lewis's journal. Obviously, they used white gloves in National Treasure to look at the Declaration of Independence. Yes. And since we know that the writers consulted with historical experts this time around, you'd think that they would have learned about the whole no white gloves thing, making this feel like a very explicit and purposeful Easter egg. For sure. <laughs> okay. Episode 7. We also mentioned this in our last podcast chat, but the whole uh, clue that is, go to the place where the first Queen of Spain and St. Jerome met and passed notes. Of course, that refers to the intersection of two streets, just like here at the wall in the first film. This is an Aubrey very green flag. This made me so happy. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Move on to episode eight. We're getting there. We're almost through. Uh, we have Ethan and Tasha's run-in with the Mexican police. is similar to Ben and Riley at the Eiffel Tower with the French police. Uh, they're both uh, involved in a moment of sort of distraction as well. 
Also in episode 8, Billy tracks everyone through the SIM card in their phone. This could be seen as a nod to Mitch's SIM card trick in National Treasure 2. Finally in episode 8, only Manuela and Raphael, quote, knew this book existed, referring, of course, to Raphael's journal with the treasure hunt notes, a bit like the President's Secret Book. Wow. You were on a roll there, so I didn't want to step on your toes. I, yes, all of them, amazing. I am happy to keep rolling. Okay, episode nine. I just have three words here. Hannah Betsy Ross. We love to see Hannah Betsy Ross. An amazing homage to our um, protagonists being named after important historical figures. Also in episode nine, the die on Sadusky's hand was orange die 47. I did not get this one, but nobody will be surprised about that. Also in episode nine, Sadusky's cipher in the Lost Treasures book that Liam and Oren decode, um, that cipher listed Salazar as leader, much like Thomas Gates was listed as artifacts on Mitch's booth diary page. This is an Aubrey Green flag. Subtle, but very cute. Love it. All right, we've got two more. Am you ready? I am prepared. Episode 10. This was a notice of yours, Emily. You want to say it? It was a notice of mine. Um, so in episode 10, we see um, the the wooden cage that comes down on Jess and her dad. And Liam and Ethan quickly come around to help them out of said cage. But it's hard to lift. And we see a moment where Raphael is willingly staying in the cage to let Jess out. And it seems for a moment as though he may get trapped under the cage in trying to escape which is obviously a reference to uh the door closing uh leaving mitch in cipolo obviously and then finally in episode 10 um we saw our protagonists have to put their hand into the hole in the statue of the god of war in the treasure house to gain entry into the treasure chamber itself this is a beautiful nod to surrender your hand to the heart of the warrior in national treasure 2 Yes, amazing. Okay, so we've talked about similarities. We have some differences. We know this. Some of these are some not gripes that we've had with the with the series, but just things we've noticed that are different. So let, let's talk about them quickly. Let's do it. Okay, again, caveat, this is a non-exhaustive list. The first one is how history is used in Edge of History itself. We did preview this back in episode 51, but Edge of History uses history for exposition more than it uses history to solve clues. Now, the films, of course, are known for their use of history to actually solve clues. It's one of the reasons that Ben can solve them and the villains can't, because he knows history better than they can. Which brings us to another difference. The differences in the villains' capabilities. Okay, Ian and Mitch, they bring wealth and greed to the treasure hunts. Billy brings wealth and an impressive knowledge of history. Honestly, I personally wish we had learned more about her educational pedigree. Like, how does she know the ancient Mesoamerican languages? Yeah, no, that was amazing. Now, one could also argue that Billy's motivation is a little less selfish. She's not actually trying to get more wealthy herself, right? Because she's blowing up the treasures. 
That being said, I guess you could call it selfish since she's a member of the larger societal group that quote-unquote benefits, according to Krasas Nostrum, if the treasures aren't found. But on a very, like, individual level, she's not trying to be like Ian and, like, take the treasure and be rich. Very, very true. Speaking of... Differences in the villain's motivations. We have really classic motives, wealth, and fame for the movie villains. Um, For the show, we have something much more deep, much more controversial, Um, right? This idea of keeping the status quo in society regarding who has wealth and power. This is, I know we've said it before, I will say it again, a very important topic that we will discuss in more detail in a later episode. And I will say a very pleasant surprise as uh like having this kind of deeper motivation for the villains than just your stereotypical. Totally. I totally agree. Okay, another big difference. And this one I have seen online, y'all. The body counts. Okay, this is actually one of the critiques I've seen by many people on Twitter as one of the main things that they don't like about the show if they have to pick something out. So in the films, we very explicitly get one death per movie. For the series, we have, by my count, Agent Sadesky, Billy's first henchman in the pit. I think it was Nate. Nate. Miles. Rotsky, he's the henchman in the study. The two henchmen in the swamp... The, I think, two henchmen on the swamp deck that Ross killed as she's bleeding out. Casey. And, of course, Salazar Ney Hendricks. Yeah. I mean, how many was that? Um, One, uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One per episode, technically, if you want to spread it out. Dude, heck yes! (laughs) Okay, okay. Now, okay, um, I've actually read interpretations, again, on Twitter, that this death toll was because they needed to sort of up the danger, up the stakes. But I personally thought the whole danger and stakes element was supposed to be upped by Jess's DACA status. Now, it was, right? That was, like, really rammed down our throats in the beginning. It really feels like they switched from DACA danger in the first half of the season to the death danger in the second half because the vast majority of these 10 deaths happened in the latter half of the season. Um, yeah, I think definitely. I think at a certain point, it must have been because Jess made it clear, like, she almost didn't care anymore so it was like how can the audience care if she's not caring and then her friends kind of stopped caring once the danger stakes was up so yeah (laughs) it's a good point also probably a conversation for a future episode why they might have made that choice um okay another difference in the series we get to see Liam and Ethan working together on the same team, um, which I think is really best exemplified in the last episode by their time together on the swamp boat trying to follow, um, you know, a kidnapped Jess and Raphael. Now, what I like about this is this really tears down a pretty common, like, toxic masculinity slash macho slash rivalry or even possessiveness over a woman character that we typically see in pop culture portrayals where men are kind of fighting over the same woman. Now, there is no direct analog to this in the National Treasure films, right? Though we know the movies aren't exactly known for their overtly feminist messaging. Mm, Understatement. That being said, I do wonder what would have happened if Ben and, like, the Phil Dunphy character had to work together to save Abigail. How would that have been portrayed? Probably not like this. No, I think not well. 
<laughs> so kudos, kudos, Edge of History. You, you, you did good. Okay, another point here. Near the end of each piece of media, the nature of the protagonist's work with the villains is a bit different. Of course, in the National Treasure movies, the protagonists have to collaborate with the villains to find the treasure, but in Edge of History, the protagonists are literally kidnapped by the villains. Yes. Um I I did really like these uh these these little these little changes in the villain protagonist interactions, because I think that those are some of the more uh, complex character dynamics we see. I would completely agree. All right. Overarching thought here. That's sort of a difference, I think. Is there something unsatisfactory about Jess finding a lost treasure in like two, three weeks that no one could find for centuries? Right? The difference here is that the Gates family was searching for the Templar treasure for centuries, so it didn't feel like Ben just serendipitously stumbled across it in the same way one might get that impression about Jess. Ooh, that's interesting. I will say, yeah, I mean, some of the pieces were already in place for Jess, um, in that other people had possession of, you know, at least the first box. But yes, I agree. It It's not like... You know, Billy knew a lot of history, but it didn't really seem like Billy was bringing anything to the table in terms of, like, solving the clues from all of her time spent with it that Jess wasn't able to kind of, like, also bring to the table. I just think, ultimately, it can be a lot simpler than that. Jess has only been doing this for three weeks. Ben's been doing it for 40 years. True. Okay, moving right along. I think the biggest question here that a lot of people have is what does the ending of Edge of History Season 1 mean for the story of the actual films that we know and love? Now, this is something that we will, of course, talk to the Wibberleys about, um, but I will say that they have done an interview with Collider online that you can read if you're interested that does talk a little bit about this. What I will say is it's important for viewers to recall that Raphael was quote-unquote killed, like everyone thought he died, by uh, at the hands of Salazar's men in the year 2001. So, if Raphael saw Salazar murder Sebastian, that would have been pre-2001 and therefore pre-National Treasure film, which takes place around 2004. Okay, that means that Salazar was working for the FBI as Agent Hendricks in 2004. So why was he working for the FBI? Now, some on Twitter have postulated that Ian Howe, our original villain, was a member of Cross S. Nostrum, and that's why Hendricks never recorded Ben's tip about the Declaration of Independence. I think the question becomes, what do we think about this, and what do the creators think about this? It has come to light that the that the Wibberleys themselves have said, we did sort of think about, yeah, why didn't Hendrix record the tip? Let's say this is the reason why. There was a previous version of the script for Edge of History, they have also said, in which Ian is sort of retroactively accused of being part of Cross S. Nostrum. However, that was never committed to film, and it was never published in a way that, like, you know, we talk about the alternative stories in um, the National Treasure 2 book, for instance. It was still published as a book that people can read. So in a way, it is canon in some senses, right, because it is public. What do we think about Hendrix and why he was working for the FBI? 
So I personally think that I I have no idea. This is something I've been trying to figure out for a little while now. So I I don't buy it. I I think people want to point to this, and I think it's it's an like you can theoretically say, oh yeah, he didn't record the tip for this reason. However. I'm just not really buying it because of the way his character and his his position was portrayed in the movie itself. He comes off as just being bad at his job as a young agent. And now if we know that he wasn't even there to really be a real agent, of course he's not good at his job kind of thing. Plus, we are given literally every inkling to believe that Ian financed Ben himself and wanted the treasure for wealth. Not that Ian wanted the treasure for anything other than to become more rich. Very true. Another thing here, some viewers on Twitter have wondered if there are implications for Mitch here. Could Mitch have been part of Crossess Nostrum in some way? I feel very strongly that this is even less likely than the Ian theory. Um, why do I think that? Well, if Mitch wanted to destroy the treasure, he very easily could have brought explosives with him and blown up Cibola immediately, even if he was going to die in the process. Because um, he did end up getting to Cibola, unlike Ian and the Templar treasure. Plus... Hendrix, recall, was super confused by Sadusky's actions at Mount Rushmore. See those deleted scenes that we've talked about. And that leads me to my ultimate theory that Hendrix probably joined the FBI to keep an eye on Sadusky and get closer to the Templar treasure through Sadusky, especially if Hendrix was familiar with Sadusky's high-ranking masonry status. Hmm. And then it turns out that Siebel is a whole thing. Um, and, you know, then Hendrix may have even known that Sadusky got the jade box from Siebel, which is how Billy then knew how to get it from Jack Sadusky. However, I think it is fairly obvious that the movies were never written with Hendrix being a secret bad guy. That's okay. However, I think we should acknowledge that because if they were written with the idea that Hendrix is a secret bad guy, then Hendrix would have done something to destroy the Templar treasure and Cibola before Ben could get to them and share them with the world. You know, the whole point of Crosses Nostrum. It's true. It's also possible, and this we can get into this in a later episode, he and Crosses Nostrum did not deem the contents of these particular treasures like noteworthy enough to be destroyed i think that would follow more for like the templar treasure than it would for cibola if we're going by like the uh supremacy the white supremacy uh component of things i would actually argue the opposite i would argue that cibola would be very much in the wheelhouse of cross us nostrum because it's a native american treasure and native americans have been you know oppressed and marginalized and they're the exact type of group that could stand to benefit in multiple ways from having their their culture that also happens to be valuable culture returned to them to kind oh, of sorry yes that's what i meant oh okay <laughs> yes agreed got it okay that being said i think perhaps equally importantly as what this means for sort of the outcome of the films i think there's an equally important yet much less talked about question here which is, what does the beginning of the series, not the end, what does the beginning of the series mean for the movies? Recall that Sadusky was forced out of the FBI in 2007, according to Hendricks, in a scene where we have no reason to not believe him, right? Mm -hmm. Why? 
why was he forced out? Was it because of the way he handled Ben's cases? Was it because he took something, i.e. the jade box, from Cibola? Was it because he apparently took the other artifacts that he put in his playroom? <laughs> or maybe because Hendrix convinced FBI people that Sadusky was losing it or doing a bad job so that he so that Sadusky himself would no longer have the FBI's resources to get close to the closer to the Pan American treasure. Mm, I like that. Now recall that Hendrix said that Sadusky's son died, and that's when Sadusky was never the same. Well, Jack Sadusky died merely days after receiving the Jade Box. So he must have died in 2007, right? Book of Secrets mm-hmm. takes place around 2007. Sadusky was released from the FBI in 2007. This makes me feel like Hendrix was involved in Sadusky being released from the FBI. Like, maybe... Hendrix started the dementia rumor. Love it. I completely agree. Okay, I know I've been talking a lot. Uh, that's because, unbeknownst to you all who are listening, um, we're actually recording this episode mere minutes before we host our final Edge of History Season 1 watch party on Discord. So we need to speed through this closing. And that closing involves ranking or giving our overall impression on the quality of parallels between the series and the films. And of course, what we might want to see changed in parallels in a potential second season of Edge of History. So Emily, I'll start with you. How did you feel about the parallels that we discussed today? I would say for the most part, I very much enjoyed them. Um, I, Like I said, once again, I just come from a place uh, in my pop culture watchings, especially being pertained to like comics and stuff like that, where uh, direct recreations and stuff like that are very common. Um, and so I think I just, yeah, I think my enjoyment of seeing national treasure things play out on screen just kind of like trumped everything for just kind of a uh, like overruled everything uh, for me. I think I would like to see if possible, even more like deep cut Easter eggs in the second season, Um, like ones that, you know, maybe only our fans and stuff uh, will notice. Well, I'll have to see. What about you? Completely agree. I give me more of those Easter eggs, the subtle nods, please. I think that maybe one of the reasons I found the second half of the season so successful was because they mostly abandoned those recreations with the exception of the I'm going to break my dad out of prison. Um, All the other recreations were in the first half of the season. Um, So yeah, give me more Easter eggs. And ultimately, I just want to say I really enjoyed this exercise because I think it made me think a little bit more about why I perceive things in certain ways. And I think I have kind of narrowed down some overarching beliefs that I probably had this whole time about you know, media franchises and how they play, like, different installments of a franchise play off each other and how me as a viewer, like, how I interpret that. So this was fun. Definitely. So if you would like to, please tell us what you thought about the parallels in the series. Um, 
you can find us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We also have a website, uh, nthuntpodcast.com. Um, and, you know, send us all the Easter eggs, your favorite recreations, and other parallels that we maybe will mention on a future episode of the podcast. Who knows? yes absolutely and don't forget to come back we've been teasing this episode for a long time our next episode is a full breakdown of the novelization of national treasure 2 book of secrets it's the book about the book guys uh you're gonna want to listen to that it's gonna change your entire perception of book of secrets it's going to turn it on its head you are going to love it and now it is time for emily and myself to go on over to discord to do our watch party but for those of you who are just listening in today um we'll catch you next time but until then i'm aubrey and i'm emily and thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt (laughs) 